Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And Rob, you're back for your first uh, listener mail in a bit. I, I did a couple without you there. It, it's good to have you back on the mic. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you were there fighting the mailbag, um, <laughs> uh, keeping it from becoming too overstuffed, lest it uh, erupt uh, all over us. Um, you know, one of the things I did uh, while I was out is I, I finished rereading Dune by Frank Herbert, and then I mm-hmm. um, I reread Dune Messiah, the the second one in the series. And I did want to update for anyone out there who cares about this as much as I do. Um, one of the th- the things that I uh, ended up doing um, an artifact uh, episode uh, regarding uh, is is the idea of donkeys of Dune because it's uh, it's mentioned in. Uh, in in the the appendices for uh, for the first Dune novel that uh, that still that there there had there are donkeys on the planet Arrakis they are sometimes outfitted in still suits and they're they're used either to you know for, for mild carrying of things around and they're sometimes used for milk um, as as a dairy uh, um, animal and uh, so I, in that artifact episode I speculated on why this could be you know part of my thinking was that well it doesn't seem like like Frank Herbert ever did anything in his Dune novels without a lot of thought going into it so it couldn't just be a random choice that there are donkeys on Arrakis but there don't seem to be camels on Arrakis. Um, you know, both are, are animals that are that are um, adapted to, uh, at desert environments. But but why the donkey and not the camel? So I talked about that for a little bit, and then when I reread Dune Messiah, lo and behold, there is one little passage in there which is kind of uh, as a as an offhanded remark uh, that's mentioned that the the Fremen of Arrakis would not know about the camel. Like the camel is, spe- is specifically mentioned as being an animal of the golden age of earth. Uh, so still, I don't have any, you know, he, there's no uh, little, little note there where Herbert describes why in great detail he decided to go with the donkey rather than the camel. I expect that it might line up with some of the ideas I presented, uh, but he does seem to double down in Messiah on there being no camels whatsoever on the planet. Well, glad to get that information. But wait a minute. No, are your ideas that what? That would it be that the camel is extinct by the time of, of the Dune novels? Or that, uh, or that what, like the Bene Gesserit have conspired not to let knowledge of the camel spread? Basically, my, uh, my critique was that based on some, some really excellent sources, there have been whole books written about like the role of um, – uh, you know the, the history of the use of of, uh, of the donkey, uh, the history of the use of the camel, and it's all you know. You, know, you can also get into various comparisons about how they good they are uh, energy wise. But basically, it seems like the camel is more useful for longer distances and greater cargo. Mm-hmm. And it seems like on Arrakis, you know, first of all, you're dealing with it with an age in which you have things like ornithopters and you can fly around. You, you have more you have other means of transportation that are available to you. Uh, also, you can't just uh, while the camel would be perfect for moving across long distances over the desert. You can't very well do that if you have uh, sandworms around, because mm. unless you have somehow taught the camel to walk with no rhythm, it's just going to wind up in the belly of the sandworm. Oh, one of the other arguments that is often made in comparing camels and donkeys is the camel is a more expensive animal. So mm. if you have to go with one, uh, like the cost of the donkey is less than the cost of keeping a, a camel, or so it seems. I accept. <laughs> and then I guess you've got to somehow get enough camels to 
uh, Arrakis to begin with. I mean, uh, camels or donkeys. So maybe that's part of it too. Uh, you, you have to factor in how many are you bringing. I don't know. There's a there's additional computation you could make on it. Uh, but like I say, I was excited just to see it mentioned again. Uh, I, I didn't remember this from from my previous reading of Dune Messiah. So uh, here's hoping that uh, Children of Dune continues this trend and offers more juicy tidbits about uh, donkeys on the planet Arrakis. Yes, here's hoping. Uh, well, Rob, if you don't mind, I guess I'm going to jump right into our first message from a listener with this uh, email from Renata. Let's do it. Okay, Renata says, hi, Rob, Joe, and Seth. A short-time listener, frequent emailer, I started listening in the summer of 2021 and have been working my way back through your catalog. I have a story to tell about water tasting, but first I want to share a phenomenon I recently came across that reminded me of the Moses effect. I guess water tasting would tie into our episodes on thirst, and the Moses effect was something we discussed in a recent Vault episode. Now, if you haven't listened to the episode, the Moses effect is... uh, is an example of a type a type of phenomenon known as knowledge neglect, where you can ask somebody a question like, uh, how many of each type of animal did Moses take onto the ark? And most people will say two, even though they know that it was Noah and not Moses who took animals onto the ark. They're just like, they just ignore that semantic error in the question and mm-hmm. answer it as if you had said Noah. And there are all kinds of interesting little implications of knowledge neglect. But uh, Renata goes on to say, there's another type of linguistic illusion called the comparative illusion. Most people report that they understand a sentence like this one. Here you go. More people have been to Berlin than I have. (laughs) I'm supposed to understand? That just kind of breaks my brain to, to, to hear that. I mean, it's the kind of thing that if you're asked to focus on it, yeah, it sounds wrong because it's actually a nonsensical sentence. But if you if you just came quickly in a conversation, it would go right over me. I would just be like, yeah, I understand what that means. I mean, I guess they're trying to say like more people within my circle have been to Berlin than I. Uh, it, st- it still breaks my brain. Sorry. Oh, even that wouldn't make any sense, would it yeah. really? Uh, okay, so Renata goes on to explain. She says, but this sentence makes less sense the more you think about it. At first blush, I interpret the sentence to mean, I have not been to Berlin. Most other people have. <laughs> that that <laughs> um, doesn't work. Yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. She, she says, I'm curious if it means something different to you. To understand the issue with this sentence, an example of a well-formed comparison sentence may help. Quote, more people have been to Berlin than those who have been to Fiji. The first half of the sentence, A, is the number of people who have been to Berlin. The second half of the sentence, B, is the number of people who have been to Fiji. The second sentence is saying A is greater than B. However, in the first sentence I gave, while A is the same, the second half of the sentence isn't referring to a set of people. And if I understand the grammatical explanation, that's where the problem arises. The sentence is almost a Yogi Berraism when you stop <laughs> to think about it. You're saying that the set of everyone who has been to Berlin is greater than yourself. It's a statement uh, either so obviously true that it's uninformative or it has no meaning at all. Maybe we can come back to more uh, about uh, this after the email's done. Uh, But I also wanted to uh, read, uh, so Renata has comments on water tasting. She writes, uh, this is in response to your series about thirst. 
coffee making is another profession that pays close attention to the composition and taste of water. My partner is a barista, and one of the things he likes to do is organize coffee tastings, where he makes the same coffee with the same method of preparation and every other variable controlled except the water source. He'll use local tap water, distilled water, and water with different mineralities. And the results are staggering. My partner has trained his brain to identify subtle differences in flavors, but even to the novice taster like me, the coffee tastes entirely different based on the water, mostly impacting acidity and bitterness. Uh, we live in Wisconsin currently, and the water is extremely hard. Any coffee nerd living in Wisconsin knows we have to make our own water for coffee. My partner and I distill our own water and add a mixture of minerals to produce the proper concentration per gallon. Fortunately, you can now buy pre-portioned mineral packets. Wow, that, that is dedication to coffee. When they said we have to make our own water for coffee, again, apologies, I've just been reading a lot of Dune recently. Yeah. I was just imagining like the, the Fremen coffee and you're having to use like a, a still Urine suit spout and, yeah. <laughs> uh, to prepare it. Doesn't matter that it was once tears and, and armpit sweat. It is clean now. I mean, it hasn't all water been tear and armpit sweat at some yes. point? Yes, yes. Every glass of water you drink is full of water that was once dinosaur urine, dinosaur feces, <laughs> somebody's diarrhea. It's it's all the same water. By the way, there is a recipe for Fremen coffee in the Dune Encyclopedia. So uh, uh, at some point, I'm going to fire that up. Okay, going back to the email, uh, Renata says, okay, so she said, she and her partner live in Wisconsin now, but uh, a few years ago, they moved to New Zealand. And she says, distilled water isn't readily available to buy, and we didn't have a distiller ourselves. At first, we were distraught that our coffee would taste bad. But it turned out that our tap water was actually quite close to ideal. This fascinated and excited my partner. <laughs> so when he saw an advertisement for a water tasting event, he just had to go, thinking he would find there uh, like-minded flavor enthusiasts uh, like himself. Sure enough, they brought waters from around New Zealand and the world and had participants guess the origin. But he was mildly embarrassed to learn that this was put on as a joke and the organizers weren't going to educate him on why the waters tasted the way they did. And then she attaches a news article about the event. And then one final uh, question. She says, did you know that there was an NPR piece on the science of drinking? Uh, this is drinking water, not drinking alcohol. The science of drinking. That was published at about the same time as your episodes. Coincidence, or were you inspired by this research? Uh, and then she links to an NPR piece. Then finally says, love your show. Wish you and your families a great 2022. Thank you for bringing me and so many others joy. All the best, Renata. Well, thank you so much, Renata. Great email. Uh, okay, I guess to take things in a more or less random order. You know, when you said the water tasting event was a joke, I thought surely the joke was going to be that all the water actually came out of the same hose round back outside the restaurant. But I didn't see any obvious indication of this in the article. Maybe, maybe I missed it somehow. Uh, so so I, I'm not sure what you're getting at there. Well, it seems like the like New Zealander uh, humor can be a little little dry, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to, it may be hard to get to, 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 to catch on to if you're, uh, you're looking in the wrong direction. I know people have done that before, like, you know, mm -hmm. selling people on the idea of here's various fancy bottled waters, but it all came out of a hose. 
Oh yeah, and then of course there there are various wine experiments. Uh, been, been meaning to come back to that on the on the show because I know we have like a, there was like an old episode where we very briefly talked about one of these studies where they're you know they're kind of doing a gotcha moment by saying ah you were not you know you you you, you were just confusing you confused red wine with white wine uh, <laughs> and uh, and so forth uh, which I mean some of that I think can be illuminating about you know how much uh, you know language and and priming we put into our experience of, uh, of, of, of taste sensations like a glass of wine or a beer or, or anything. But, but on the other hand, like all of that is important. Like you can't, I feel like it's kind of cheap to discount like knowledge of where something came from or the history that went into it, the culture, the traditions that it went into it, and just boil it all down to just this pure sensory experience because that's, you know, that's not how we work with our, our food culture. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wonder about it. I know the, some of the studies you're talking about where they like give people cheap wine and ask them to mm-hmm. do tasting notes as if it's super expensive. And then it's like, oh, you didn't even know this was cheap or whatever. I, yeah. I don't know. I think that – I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be too critical because I'm not actually looking at those studies right now. But I remember looking at some of that stuff and thinking that it, it was kind of uh, leaving out some important factors of, of like the experience of tasting things in general. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, we could come back to it. We could definitely look at that. Uh, So as for the question about the timing of uh, Thirst Stories uh, on our show and on NPR, no, I I didn't have any idea. And I think the episodes were were my idea to do. So, Rob, I don't know if you heard this at the same time, but this just happens sometimes. I remember people used to ask us about this especially when it would happen on different how stuff works podcasts, like Mm -hmm. occasionally stuff you should know would cover the same topic as us in the same week. And people would ask if we did that on purpose. Uh, no, I mean, we we don't collaborate on, on like planning topics out or anything like that. And honestly, I think if we could predict that in advance, we would avoid it since we have a lot of audience overlap. So no, it just happens. Like generally, if there if I hear something really cool on uh, on NPR or certainly on another podcast, and I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, but occasionally, you know, I listen to something, and um, and it, if I do hear something cool, and I'm be think, oh, that would be a cool topic for us to explore. I would I, the the added part of that is explore in maybe you know three to six months. You know, yeah, <laughs> we can't really jump on it right now because I feel like well they just they they just did a great job with that. What what could we contribute at this point? Yeah, actually the same here. I, I would say that um, you know ultimately everything I suggest to cover on the podcast is pretty much necessarily because of something I read somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. Ultimately, but. Uh, there's usually a bigger time lag. It's something I read months ago, which kind of ferments in my brain for a while, and then I eventually come back around to it. Yeah, yeah. The main exception to this, uh, I would imagine, would be when when we occasionally have guests on, and sometimes those mm. guests have a book coming out. And so, uh, yeah, you hear Mary Roach talking about her new book on our show, and yes, she's also talking about the new book uh, on this other podcast or on this NPR show, et cetera. And, you know, obviously, yeah. all that ends up landing around the same time. Publishing timelines, yeah, yeah. Uh, but finally, coming back to your idea of the comparative illusion and its its similarity to the Moses effect, I, I really love this. I, I think it's really interesting. It's it's just another indication that there is something so much more to verbal communication than just a literal reading of the words in each sentence we speak or hear, mm-hmm. since we can so often say things, or I think especially can pose questions that are literally nonsensical as phrased. And yet somehow most of the time people understand what we're trying to say. We understand what we're hearing and we just take it in stride and respond as if the person 
phrased the question correctly, which you know we assume is what they were trying to to ask. Right. Now, I, I want to come back to the the idea of of different waters uh, being selected for the brewing of coffee. Um, somebody should take this and run with it. Like, pick a particular water and make that be like the the guiding principle behind your your coffee uh, franchise. I'm thinking like Florida water coffee. That can <laughs> that can, well, you can t- to just take the world by storm with that. Oh man, to revisit a recent show topic, uh, heavy water coffee company. Yeah, it's all you know. You get your deuterium. It's it's a it's a risky it's a risky lifestyle, <laughs> but it's the heaviest. Okay, uh, Rob, do you want to? Let's see. Do you want to do this message from Brett connecting to some older episodes we've done about the ant parasite fungus Ophiocordyceps? Sure. Uh, Brett writes in and says, Hey, Robin Joe, I know you guys have touched on zombie ant fungus many times, but I don't recall you mentioning this study from 2017. Apparently, the researchers discovered through electron microscopy that the fungus weaves into and around muscle fibers throughout the body, but doesn't invade the brain. To quote the paper, quote, fungal cells were found throughout the host body, but not in the brain, implying the behavioral control of the animal body by this microbe occurs peripherally. Additionally, fungal cells invaded host muscle fibers and joined together to form networks that encircled the muscles. These networks may represent a collective foraging behavior of this parasite, which may in turn facilitate host manipulation, unquote. So the question I pose to you, too, is this. What is scarier, a parasite living in your brain and turning you into a zombie, or the parasite leaving your brain fully intact so that you are forced to observe the horror of your body being driven to an involuntary death? Uh, they include the, the, uh, the link to the, uh, the paper. Love the show. It's genuinely the best podcast out there. Don't ever stop. Brett. Oh, thanks, Brett. Oh, yeah, that this is a question for David Cronenberg. <laughs> I mean, they're both they're both horrible fates to behold, right? The losing control of your body or losing control of your mind. I mean, really, I think we all think about this probably all the time as we we get older, right? Yeah. Um, you know, which what what is more dear to me? Uh, you know, and preferably you'd want to hold on to both, uh, and just uh, the the parasites leave you completely alone. But uh, uh, you know. Uh, not if the uh, the parasites have anything to do with it. Uh, as for the the particular um, paper here in this revelation, uh, I do remember covering it in some form, but I'm at a loss to remember how. If it came up in a particular episode, or if I did a blog post about it back when mm-hmm. blog posts were a thing, uh, I, I do remember reading it uh, because it, it certainly you know turns the tables on our uh, on our uh, on what seemed to be our understanding of this scenario in the past. Well, yeah, and I know we have covered Ophiocordyceps, so if, mm-hmm. if if it was not this paper we were looking at, I wonder what else it would have been. So, yeah, I'm not sure. But anyway, to give the full reference, in case you want to look the paper up for yourself, it's published in PNAS in 2017 by Fredrickson et al., and it's called Three-Dimensional Visualization of a Deep Learning Model Reveal Complex Fungal Parasite Networks in Behaviorally Manipulated Ants. <laughs> All right, this next message is from Matt. It says, hey, Robert and Joe, I thought I would drop you a line on the topic of thirst because I seem to have a weak thirst impulse. 
What I mean by this is I often don't have, or at least rarely notice myself being thirsty, until I'm quite far along the, the way towards dehydration. It's often to the point that if I forget to drink, I will develop migraines from dehydration. In response to this, I find I often need to schedule out when I drink, such as drinking a glass during every even hour throughout the day, or I will drink between each appropriately timed task, or carry a water bottle with me and just constantly sip at it when my activities at work are well suited for that. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting about my situation, though I don't, uh, though I don't have a strong thirst impulse, I do experience the satiation after drinking, even if I didn't feel thirsty to begin with. It's like when I force myself to drink, my brain goes, oh yeah, I forgot to mention we were thirsty. Thanks for that. <laughs> And this is interesting, uh, Matt, because it seems to, to totally go along with some of the findings of that thirst research we were looking at, which was uh, one, one of these findings was that thirst is not sated by the reverse of the process that created it. So, you know, the, the thirst is created by this osmolality sensing, sensing mechanism in the brain that detects dehydration and it, it tries to get you to drink. But then when you drink, that good feeling you get from swallowing the water is a different process. It's not just reversing the process that made you thirsty because it actually takes like 10 to 15 minutes or so or, or maybe even more for your body to actually become hydrated from that water you drank. Yeah, it's not as simple as like a, a thirst meter in a video game where it's like, oh, well, my character's thirsty. I better drink a bunch of water. Uh, and then you just remember to keep looking at it to tell uh, whether you need more or if you're good. Right. And this is important for a number of reasons that we got into in detail in the episode. So if you haven't listened to our thirst series yet, go back and check that out and, and then you'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, uh, but then back to Matt's email. Matt uh, suggests a topic after this, which is that he, he thinks maybe we should look into the idea of uh, using indicator plants and insects uh, as in a garden to understand the condition of the soil and environment that exists there. And he, he says, uh, I'm not sure the best way of describing this, but I will try to give you examples. One would be when you see a large number of dandelions growing in the garden. Uh, I mean a lot, not just a few here and there. You can infer one or more conditions is true about the soil, such as the calcium levels are low and or the soil is very hard slash compacted. I, I, I have no knowledge of this myself, but Matt, I, I will trust uh, you're on the right track there. Anyway, he attaches some videos and links to a book about this idea of these indicator plant and, and insect species that uh, that are supposedly signals of soil health. And so, yeah, I do, I do think this is an interesting topic. Soil doesn't get enough of a look, does it, Rob? We, we could we could definitely talk about soil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know we've we've touched on soil a little bit, but it's uh, you know, soil is is alive. Soil is a, is is a rich and, and complex uh, uh, thing. Uh, I, I think one of the things we've touched on before is like vampires uh, in legend, the, especially, especially say in the, the novel Dracula, where they have to bring their grave soil with them in order to continue to thrive. Mm -hmm. uh, like, like ultimately, in, in that in, the, in these cases, anyway, vampires know what's up. They know that the soil is essential. And if life is to thrive, the soil has to be uh, has to be maintained, cared for, and uh, and provided. All right. Well, uh, I guess we've chatted enough here. Uh, we're going to go ahead and close the mailbag uh, for now, but we'll be back next week with more listener mail. So, hey, keep writing in about current episodes, past episodes, future episodes, episodes that don't even exist yet, episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, episodes of Weird House Cinema, uh, you know, any, anything uh, in between. Uh, it's all fair game. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.